Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Ambassadors Forum radio show here on True Talk 800 AM KPDQ. I'm your host, Roy Swart, father of seven, MIT graduate, active engineer in the high-tech industry, and most importantly, bought and paid for bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our mission here at the Ambassadors Forum is to equip you to be able to answer life's hard questions the same way Jesus did. Well, I have the incredible privilege today of interviewing one of the most well-known Christian scientists and professors of our time, Ian Hutchinson from MIT. Ian is a plasma physicist and professor of nuclear science and engineering at MIT. He was born in England, earned his bachelor's degree in physics from Cambridge University, and later obtained both his Ph.D. in physics and, even more importantly, his charming wife, Fran, from the Australian National University. His primary interest of research seeks to enable fusion reactions, which is the energy source of the stars, to be used for practical energy production here on Earth. He has written and spoken extensively on the relationship between science and the Christian faith, and I am both humbled and honored to have him here with us today. Professor Hutchinson, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. I've heard you say that your conversion to Christianity as a student at Cambridge was at least in part because it made intellectual sense to you, especially in today's culture where Christianity can sometimes be mocked as only an emotional crutch for the feeble-minded. That kind of testimony seems to stand out. Can you take us back to that time in your life and explain what you mean by that? Yes. I grew up in a home which was not Christian. Um, Mm. I went to a school where formal Christianity was part of the exercises, assemblies, and so so forth. But I basically didn't believe it. I didn't go to church. I didn't see any need for faith in Christ or in any God, for that mm. matter. But I was, not, I was not sort of aggressively against Christianity. I could mm. see some benefits to it culturally. When I went to Cambridge, I was studying mathematics and physics, And I made two very good friends, both of whom were outstanding, intellectually capable people, also studying the sciences and engineering. Mm. And they became good friends, and I enjoyed their friendship. And it turned out that they were both Christians, serious Christians, believers in Jesus, and followers of him. And this intrigued me enormously, because I had, to some degree, grown up with the feeling that Christianity was a crutch for the, for the weak. <laughs> not so much, because I think that my exposures to Christianity had not been of that kind of stereotypical form, by and large, and it certainly wasn't as I got to know these friends, and it was through their friendship that I came to take Christianity more seriously. And as I did, I began to realize that there was considerable intellectual reasons to believe that the claims of Christianity are actually true. Mm. And the most important influence on me ultimately was I came to believe that the resurrection was a historically very well-attested fact, which it is, and Mm. which I believe to this day, and that if one takes that seriously, then you should take seriously not just the moral teachings of a person like Jesus Christ, but his claims to be the Son of God. And 
I reached the point of recognizing that Christianity was, in fact, intellectually respectable, and that's one reason why it had commanded the allegiance of countless intellectuals over history, Mm. and that it should be taken with that seriousness. And ultimately, though, I realized that I would never know the truth definitively one way or another of Christianity unless I took a further step, because I came to realize that the Christian faith is not just an intellectual question. It's far more than that. It's a calling to a relationship with God, and that without entering into that relationship, one can never develop the confidence that comes from a personal relationship with God. And Hmm. it was on one occasion in my second year at Cambridge that I reached the point of saying that, well, yes, I do believe this to some degree. And it was at that stage that I knelt and prayed a prayer of commitment and became Christian. And I've not regretted that ever since. I've grown in my Christian faith from a probably rather ill-informed allegiance to Christ. Hmm. And so my Christian faith and my intellectual scientific development have been sort of hand in hand from there on. That's an interesting perspective to kind of imagine that those two educations, your formal scientific education and your spiritual education sort of grew up together. Looking back, do you think that that has made your faith stronger? What do you imagine would be different now if your faith had come first and then the science, or if science had come first and then the faith? Well, uh, that's a very hypothetical (laughs) question (laughs) that I would have a a hard time answering. I will say that for me, you know, coming to Christ essentially in my formative student years, Mm. it would have been impossible for me to pursue Christianity if it were intellectually unacceptable. I mean, Mm. there is no possibility within my psyche that I understand that I could somehow reach the point which is often supposed of intellectuals who are people of faith, that somehow they leave their intellect at the door of the Mm. church and then simply enter into an emotional experience. That's not part of my psyche. I can never stop thinking in a certain sense critically about questions and asking the truth of situations. That's just the way I was brought up and the way I've learnt to pursue my life. So Mm. I've always been wrestling with those types of questions. And obviously, as I grew in the faith, and as I began to think deeply about the questions of the relationship between science and Christianity, there are some puzzles um, that one should think about. And so I began to think about them. And as I did so, I read other people's answers and thought about the ways these work for me and the extent to which I found them plausible and so forth. And I developed some of my own answers and ways of expressing the answers that Mm. people have come to over the years. And that's really what led me, I suppose, into speaking more and more about the relationship between science and Christianity. It really came out of my own intellectual wrestling with the questions of that overlap. Hmm. But I've never really subscribed and I've never really found attractive the view that somehow science and faith are completely disparate, different, and have nothing to do with one another. I think there are overlaps and uh, one has to think through those overlaps. Hmm. I know that mirrors my own faith journey as well. I describe to people that 
the faith that I have today is a tested faith. Yeah. It's never something that I've blindly accepted. And I don't think the Bible calls us to a blind faith, one that's not tested or challenged. I think our faith can become stronger for the challenge and the test. So I know you've spent most of your adult life confronting the myth that the Bible and science are somehow in conflict. Your two books, each of which have such delightful titles, by the way, the first one is Monopolizing Knowledge, A Scientist Refutes Religion-Denying Reason-Destroying Scientism, and the second is can a scientist believe in miracles? An MIT professor answers questions on God and science. I think they have both do a wonderful job largely disproving this myth. Why do you think this myth then has such tenacious persistence? <laughs> and what can we do to combat that within the general population? Yeah. The idea that science and religion are sort of intrinsically at war with one another is actually, in the scheme of things, a relatively recent idea. Mm. Many people take the view that it's always been true and, <laughs> and so forth, but that's simply historically false. Mm. The myth got going predominantly in the latter part of the 19th century. And it was actually part of a conscious campaign that was associated with the secularization of universities mm. to separate science and faith and to portray them as having been at war. Up until that time, there had been no visible warfare. And in fact, the people who developed modern science as we now understand it in the, through the scientific revolution and so forth, by and large, were Christians, hmm. and not just nominal Christians. I mean, there were people who really delved into the details of their faith, and so people like Robert Boyle of Boyle's Law, or even Isaac Newton himself, he wrote more about interpreting the Bible than he wrote science. <laughs> he didn't publish it, but we now have his papers, and we know that he was intensely interested about these religious questions and, and interested in interpreting the Bible. And so, so the idea that there's somehow an intellectual gap between science and Christianity is something that got going and became part of the cultural baggage of the 20th and now the 21st century. Again, I don't mean to say that, you know, there aren't puzzles associated with the relationship between science and Christianity. Some of those puzzles are associated with what we make of the Bible and the way it talks about the world. And mm. is that consistent with what we're discovering through science, which is an amazingly rich and powerful way of understanding the world around about us. And those puzzles have been around for a while, indeed, since Galileo and before, and it's worth trying to understand them. But portraying them in this simplistic way that the anti-theists of today put forward is intellectually unsupportable. It's mm. just nonsense. When I read your books and some of your articles, I thought, boy, it is so easily falsifiable. Why do you think it pervades the common culture so extensively? Well, I do think that we now live in a culture that is largely secularized, and that's especially true of the academy, of universities and mm -hmm. higher education. 
And so the efforts that were put forward in the 19th century to secularize higher education were largely successful. And so with the exception of specifically Christian colleges and universities, of which there are scattering in the U.S., but not too many elsewhere, mm. Mm. with those exceptions, by and large, the, the academy is secular. And so although there are Christians at a place like MIT, on the faculty, amongst the student body and so forth, and not negligible numbers amongst the faculty, by the way, mm. the common discussion of the academy more or less is, is secular in outlook. And so what writers like Dawkins and, and other anti-theistic writers have tapped into is, first of all, a wonder about the natural world and the amazing depth to which we've begun to understand it. After all, Richard Dawkins got his start as an outstanding exponent of evolutionary biology, and he has a wonderful way of explaining science to people, and mm. I don't want to belittle that at mm. all. But then, it, for him and for many other the anti-theistic writers, their secular viewpoints on the, their worldview became preeminent in the way that they write. And so they moved into areas which aren't so much science as they are philosophy and metaphysics mm. and, and mm. theology, for that matter. Mm. And really, when they did so... Many of them are taking an extremely naive view of philosophy and theology and end up promoting that to their secular audience mm. in ways which are, from the point of view of literary style and so forth, very stylistic, and mm. these are good writers, but they're not very good thinkers very often, and that's mm. the problem. Mm. I know that you've talked about the definition of science and scientism. I was wondering if you could expound upon that as a way to better understand what the claim of contradiction is and maybe what the reality of, yeah. of there being no contradiction. Yeah. So scientism is a shorthand for a very widespread outlook within our society, particularly in intellectual circles today, which takes the view that basically science is the only or at least the preeminent way to find out any knowledge. In other words, that science is all the real knowledge there is. Mm. This is a viewpoint that has been growing over hundreds of years, but is very predominant in the academy these days. It has some very deleterious effects on a number of non-scientific disciplines. So there are plenty of things that humans know that they actually don't find out using the methods of science because science is not really all the knowledge there is. And so the examples that I usually use are things like history. History has lots of real knowledge about what's happened in the past, but that knowledge is not gained by the same methods that science uses to find out knowledge in physics and chemistry and biology and mm. geology and so forth. And yet there has developed this viewpoint that history and sociology and the humanities generally have to make a kind of transition from being pseudo-sciences or just budding sciences mm -hmm. into 
fully fledged science is the same way that you know physics and chemistry and so forth are mm. but that's of course not the case i say of course there were strong philosophical movements that supposed that to be true these are sometimes called by the term positivism Mm. And so the positivists of the early 19th century and of the early 20th century thought that it's true that basically all knowledge is really to be found out by the same kinds of methods that science uses. But I think these days, although philosophically those movements have been repudiated by most careful and thinking philosophers, nevertheless, in society as a whole, we still rely so much on science. We still have so much technology that science has enabled us to develop. Mm. And we see the methods of science as being so powerful that there's perhaps a natural tendency to think that we should rely on it for essentially all of our knowledge. Well, coming back to this question of how that influences the discussion between science and faith and how that influences the plausibility of faith and the arguments of the anti-theists. The argument in general that those writers rely on is to say something like, there's no evidence for Christianity. <laughs> well, there is evidence for Christianity, and I've already referred to some of the evidences, for example, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and in the historical evidence surrounding Christianity, not to mention the experiences of Christians over history and so forth. All of that is evidence, but it is not scientific evidence, okay? It's evidence from the humanities and so on. And so... What they're really doing when they say there's no evidence for Christianity is they're saying that science doesn't prove Christianity, and that's a statement I can accept off on its face, although I want to moderate it a little bit. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that Christianity is false. So, you know, that's the way scientism works in our society today. And as the title of my book implies... Scientism tends to make a nonsense of lots of other disciplines, not just of theology or of religious faith. So scientism is biasing and distorting our understanding of human knowledge as a whole. Hmm. Hmm. That's good. How do you think that you have remained so committed and vocal in your faith in such a rigorously intellectual community like MIT. And why do you think a lot of Christians who are in maybe similar environments feel pressure to compromise or hide their faith in an effort to be accepted in that community? Well, I love the Lord, and I have sought to follow him seriously in accordance with his teachings since I became Christian, and that's over 50 years ago now. Hmm. One of his statements which struck me very early on in my Christian life was Jesus saying that if we are ashamed of him, then <laughs> yeah. he will be ashamed of us. Hmm. And I set out in my Christian faith not to be ashamed of him. And so that was, in a certain sense, a personal determination. I think that most of the students that I've interacted with, if they know me at all, know that I'm a Christian. I'm not particularly pushy about it, either with students or with my colleagues. Mm. But I'm sufficiently outspoken that they get the message pretty much right away. So, mm. you know, but I'm not out, 
you know, seizing the lapels of someone in the street and saying, are you saved? Yes. <laughs> that, to me, although there, is, there may be a place for that in some circumstances, <laughs> that is not what I feel myself called for, and I don't think it would work in the academy or mm. in, in intellectual circles. But I have sought to make meaningful interactions between my faith and my profession. And I actually find that people are quite appreciative of that. I mean, you know, that unbelievers don't necessarily buy into what I have to say, necessarily. But uh, it's, a, it's rather rare where I've found aggressive colleagues mm. who attack me for my faith, at least to my at least to my face. I, I know of, you know, fellow professors at MIT who've criticized me behind my back. And it might well be the case that those criticisms have had influence with the administration and so forth at MIT, although I can't say that I've noticed any particular persecution for my faith, even mm. though I'm, I'm relatively outspoken about it. So my thoughts up for Christians in this type of situation, are you have to be natural. It has to be something that comes from a deep place in your personality, and you have to be prepared for people to reject you and to accept that, in a certain sense, with equanimity. Mm. But I think that we needn't necessarily consider ourselves to be silenced by the culture, and I've certainly tried not to be. Mm. Speaking about you know, the way in which we speak to our colleagues and our peers and the manner in which we approach things. In a very brief previous discussion before I made the statement that focusing on winning an argument can often cause us to lose the war. What do you think of that idea? How have you seen that play out in your own interactions? Yeah, I certainly think that very few people are argued into the kingdom mm. by winning arguments. Yeah. I think there's a good place for making the positive case for Christianity. I think that ultimately that case is made by the lives and the testimony of Christians. Mm. And if those lives are attractive and if those lives are lives of service and of integrity and so forth, I think that that is in a certain sense the best persuasion that can be brought to bear on the lives of people who don't know Jesus. Mm. But I think there's also a place for making some of the intellectual arguments, and I've tried to do both. I mean, looking back to what we discussed earlier, you know, I've said that I thought the lives and friendship of my student colleagues was probably the most right. important influence on me. Mm. And so I'm coming from a place where I know personally that mm. coming to take Christ uh, and his claims seriously was for me most influenced by the friendship of mm. other Christians. Uh, that's good. It reminds me of the classic apologetics scripture from first peter chapter three fifteen, where he says but in your hearts revere christ as lord always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect and right. so i think you've done a phenomenal job explaining you know the reasons the logical reasons that you have for your faith in christ to the people who have asked you and you've done it with gentleness and respect 
And I know I have really enjoyed reading the materials. Like I said, the books that, that I mentioned earlier, you've published a lot of articles online and done a lot of lectures over the years. And it's been very helpful for me to see your perspective and have you explain some of these things in a very gentle and compassionate way. And so thank you, Ian, for being on the show today. And God bless your ministry there at MIT and really across the world in sharing your testimony of what God has done for you and who he is in the world today. Well, thank you. It's been great to be with you. And I wish you and your listeners uh, God's blessing. Wow, what a privilege to interact with someone whose day job involves controlling nuclear plasma with intense electromagnetic fields at temperatures of over a 100 million degrees Celsius. He is certainly someone whose opinion about matters of faith and science should be taken very seriously. Now, how about you? Have you been persuaded by the false idea that somehow Christianity is in conflict with science? Or do you know someone else who has fallen for that myth? I encourage you to look into some of the excellent resources that Professor Hutchinson has produced, including his two books on this subject. I will leave some links on our website associated with this broadcast at theambassadorsforum.com under the radio tab. Finally, thank you for joining us on the radio today. You can join us every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on True Talk 800 a.m. KPDQ. I pray that God will raise you up in your own faith and send you out to share that faith with others in the grace and truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Until next time, I'm Roy Swart. May the Lord bless you and keep you.